Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Karen Hodge-Tusman, Senior Editor. Paul Bananos, Associate Editor. On this week's pod, we preview BioCentury's signature issue, our annual back-to-school package. Our deal in focus, handed to us on a silver platter this morning by Pfizer making a CD47 buy. And we talk about last week's record venture round by Abogen. They are developing an mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 and much, much more. We'll also take a look at biotech startup Ranoc, which offers an alternative to Protax. First up, back to school. Well, what is it? BioCentury's signature issue is a forward-looking package that looks at an issue of broad relevance across the biopharma ecosystem. It's a must-read for drug developers, BD teams, investors, regulators, payers, anyone who is in the ecosystem. Simone and the rest of my colleagues have been hard at work all summer on this issue. Simone, can you give us a little bit of a preview as to what readers might expect next week? I can, Jeff. So to go back over what you just said, what is back to school, our founders, Karen Bernstein and Dave Flores, now chairman and CEO, respectively, they started a back to school essay, I think, in the, maybe even the very first year of BioCentury. It's been going for 29 years. And it started out as a major essay to the industry with a message. It still is that. It's transformed over the years. And with our new technology, multimedia, a word I know you like, and also our ability to deploy a whole team on this, as you also alluded to, what we have this year is a back-to-school project that is going to roll out over four days next week. And on the fifth day, we will publish the essay. Our topic is the topic of accelerated approvals, or to be really more precise, it's expedited approvals. So the FDA introduced the accelerated approval pathway in 1992, and it has since been copied and in some cases tweaked, let's say, by other agencies, which don't all call it accelerated approval. They call it conditional approval. There are various different labels for expedited approvals on the condition that you will get a drug approved for a disease with a high unmet need and really no other options. And you get it approved on the basis of less full data than you might have for a full approval, but on the condition that you perform post-marketing trials. And what we've done this year is really a deep dive into the forces that are bringing about change in accelerated approval. And we are always forward-looking. So this is really not a history lesson, although it is a a sort of syllabus and compendium of where things are. And we really take a look at what the future is going to look like and what the really big vision should be for accelerated approval. I'll be honest, Jeff, it's not a quick read. (laughs) It's a deep dive. There are parts of it that are a quick read. So we have a series of stories. They are divided up along a logic that will unfold and we will explain on day one. 
There are shorter data pieces and longer essays and some short essays. These all are going to provide the foundation for what the essay will be, which we'll publish on Friday next week. And I used the word multimedia, so I'm going to throw it back to you to talk about what we're doing there. Yes, very excited that next week we will be doing four, count them, four podcasts. In lieu of our regular Monday podcast, we'll have a kickoff back-to-school podcast. We'll follow up with three more. Each day of back-to-school is divided into themes. On each pod, we'll be giving you the main takeaway from those themes. We'll have BioCentury's writers and editors who are handling all of the interviews and the deep thinking that went into this. We'll be breaking it down for you so that you can listen to Back to School as you go for a run or do your dishes if you are that kind of person. I I do it that way. Simone, I, I know that you like keeping things top secret, so I think we'll stop there and we'll get ready for next week. I'm excited. This week, I get to read the whole package myself. I'm the copy editor on this one. And it's always my favorite time of year because I I end up learning a lot and get to give everyone else on the team the rest of my job to do while I read back to school. Hey, the week started in exciting fashion. We've talked a lot about how M&A has been pretty slow this year. My colleague Paul down in our Gainesville, Florida office, home of Tom Petty and uh, 38 Special for you music fans. Uh, Jacksonville, Uh, man. Jacksonville. That's Jacksonville? I always get those towns mixed up in Florida. But uh, there's a lot of biotech innovation coming out of Florida these days. Paul, you'd been coming on saying that, you know, given the hot IPO market, people were choosing to go public, either via an IPO or a SPAC, rather than getting into a licensing deal, an M&A deal. And now we have Pfizer paying $2.3 billion to acquire Trillium a company whose stock was worth about a dollar three years ago. Is that correct, Paul? Uh, They were below a dollar for most of 2019 and have rallied since then. They've gone up and down a little bit, but yes. So tell us what Pfizer is getting in this deal. Sure, yeah. They're from nowhere near Florida. They're a Canadian biotech headquartered in or maybe just outside of Toronto, uh, Mississauga, I believe, with presence in the Boston area as well. They're an older biotech that became pretty much singularly focused on CD47 in the past decade. And they've got two programs right now. They're both fusion proteins that use the binding domain of SERP alpha. They're both in the clinic in uh, phase 1B slash 2. The emphasis is in blood cancers, but they're also investigating them for solid tumors. And as Biocentury has written before, CD47 is a very crowded field. There's been one very big deal with Gilead buying the company that was actually called 47 for almost $5 billion last year. But Trillium does believe, and now Pfizer is saying they believe as well, that their molecules have some potentially best-in-class advantages. So CD47 is an immune checkpoint known for transmitting a don't-eat-me signal that prevents cancer cells from being destroyed by macrophages. And compared with other CD47 blockers, Trillium believes that its fusion proteins can avoid binding to red blood cells, thereby sparing some risk of anemia. They believe the molecules engage with activating FC receptors on macrophages, which could confer some other durability advantages. And to date, Trillium says these are the only CD47 inhibitors that have led to complete responses in multiple malignancies as monotherapy. So that is differentiated, and Pfizer thinks they're getting something they can use as a backbone in combinations. And Pfizer and Trillium have a bit of a history going back around this program, right? 
Pfizer has invested in Trillium, I think it was late 2020 or September 2020, rather, and took a seat on the scientific advisory board. So they've had some close ties. They've been watching this closely, one assumes, for a while. It was a $25 million investment, not that huge, but substantial. And Trillium had also done a pipe deal early in 2020 worth about $117 million with some prominent VCs that also invest in public companies. So it is potentially best in class, but not first. Gilead is pretty close to a submission. And on Monday's conference call, a Pfizer Oncology's management team went out of their way to say that even if they're behind some other CD47s in the clinic, by trailing the others, they may have some advantages as far as evaluating the competitive field and designing pivotal trials. Karen, I'm going to turn to you for some of the history here. So I feel like we've watched CD47 come on the scene and grow up and I remember sitting with a couple of bicentry colleagues, I think it was about four or five years ago, and discussing something. And then I just tweeted, is CD47 the next PD1? And my Twitter blew up. There was a whole lot of excitement around it. This could be the next PD1 and so on. So where are we with this pathway? Because of course, it's CD47 and sub, right? Or sub alpha. Where are we with this pathway? And does it still have a status to be revolutionary like that? So one of the first things that the field had to take care of as it started moving assets into the clinic was around the toxicity to red blood cells, because as you might know, the CD47 pathway is how red blood cells prevent themselves from getting eaten by macrophages in the circulation. And if you inhibit that signal, you can end up with some anemia toxicity. And various companies found different ways to get around that risk, and we've written about that. But the efficacy data really started coming in. I think one of the big um, moments was in ASH of 2019, when 47 came out with phase 1b data that appeared to be stronger than any that had previously been reported. And that was in combination with Vidaza in myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myelogenous leukemia. And that was something where they really saw a large benefit over the Vidaza alone standard of care. And a kind of follow-up to that was in ASH 2020, where we started seeing data from ALX Oncology that people found promising, also from IMAB. And this was coming after IMAB had a large deal with AbbVie around CD47. So we started to see quite a bit of momentum. And then in this July, actually, ALX came out with some more data showing a 72% ORR for the combination of their CD47 targeting agent with Herceptin and some chemotherapy. And so it's kind of a quadruplet context. I think they're moving forward in this quadruplet setting for gastric cancer. So it's something where we are starting to see clinical data that people are enthusiastic about. But I do think that in the case of monotherapy, there hasn't been a ton of data that have knocked folks' socks off before. So Trillium is making the case for that in their program, I think particularly in the cutaneous T-cell lymphoma setting. And I believe for Trillium, they're positioning their product as having a differentiated way of avoiding red blood cell toxicity because 
the activity requires clustering of CD47 on cell membrane, and that clustering doesn't happen or happens to a much lesser extent in red blood cells. It'll be interesting to see how all of these players come out with more data and to see which others of them end up becoming deal takeout targets. But one thing that we captured in a data bite, I believe, was around CD47 being slotted into bispecifics. And so people looking at engaging that arm of the pathway along with other checkpoints. And that came up during Pfizer's conference call this morning, where they mentioned that they were particularly interested in pairing uh, Trillium's molecules with a bispecific that's in the clinic for multiple myeloma. That's called L-ranatumab, and it targets BCMA and CD3. And you're right. There are at least three stocks that are up by double digits today. ALX Oncology, Shattuck Labs, and IMAB were all gaining during Monday's session. And that signals investors believe some of these companies could be taken out as well. It's worth noting that Trillium's takeout came at a huge premium. You don't often see a stock that touched a 52-week low on Friday taken out Monday morning for three times the price. But that is what happened in this case. And surely it's plenty of conviction by the buyer is the signal there. But also for context, Trillium, as we said, was a penny stock. They were below a dollar in most of 2019. They did some restructuring, laid off 40% of their staff. They got a new CEO and they jettisoned an intratumoral program in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So I, th- um, I think what you're telling us, Paul, is investors didn't see this coming. I, I, and, I don't, and they it, kept it pretty well under wraps. Yeah, we, we might know more in a couple of weeks when the deal documents come out and a regulatory filing where they reveal some details about whether it was a competitive process or what. But yeah, they certainly kept it quiet. Those will be a fun read to be sure. And wow, this is biotech. This is what keeps us getting up in the morning. This was, yeah, a company that took some knocks and now they're back and Looking forward to see what happens next with this program and for the likes of ALX and Shattuck Labs and IMAB. Well, last week we saw one of the biggest private fundings ever for a biotech, if not the biggest. It was certainly the biggest ever in China for a pure play biotech. And this was for Abogen, a company in Suzhou that's developing mRNA vaccines, including one for COVID-19. Tell us about it, Paul. Sure. Yeah. So Abigen is a young company, about two and a half years old. They actually have not revealed very much about their pipeline. They don't have a website to speak of. Very few details are floating around, but I guess things move fast when you have a COVID-19 program, particularly an mRNA vaccine. It's already starting a phase three trial, 28,000 subjects. The vaccine's called ARCOV, A-R-C-O-V, in partnership with Walvax and China's Academy of Military Science. China doesn't yet have an approved mRNA vaccine. BioNTech is getting close. They're going to submit a BLA, or, or they said the BLA submission is underway as of right now. That's right. Um, and uh, BioNTech has set up a JV with Fosun for local manufacturing and distribution as well. But Abogen could certainly have an advantage by being the first homegrown mRNA mm-hmm. vaccine to gain approval in China. And that potential certainly was enough to convince a very long list of investors. There were seven leads to come in with $700 million in Series C money. Biggest private round we've seen for any Chinese biotech, at least a pure play like this. 
they had just raised $92 million US in April, and now they have cash to move forward. They say they're going to move with not only the COVID program, but with some other vaccines and oncology programs as well. So we're looking forward to learning more when more details come out about that. Yeah, that investor list is something else. It's really a who's who of the blue chip investors in China biotech, if not global biotech. You have the Singapore Sovereign Fund, Tomasic. You have Lily Asia Ventures, Hill House. Who else was in there, Paul? I know uh, Qi Ming was in very early and Boyu Capital, which has done a lot of big investments. They were a cornerstone investor in Seastone's IPO on mm-hmm. Hong Kong. And I mean, you know, there's in, been a... Go in ahead. Vesco, I was going to mention Invesco, Loyal Valley, yeah. Yunfeng Capital as well. Yeah. And, and as you're saying, some of these investors have been cornerstone investors in Hong Kong IPOs before, investing in both the mezzanine round and the IPO. So that could signal what's coming next. Yeah. They're they're keeping quiet about that still. They are. Yeah. We reached out to two China investors, at least one of which usually talks to us all the time, and they couldn't talk about the round. What we were told was that the Chinese government has media policies and other rules in place for companies developing vaccine products, in particular those in late stage testing. These guys are in phase three testing with their mRNA vaccine. It's also worth noting that they just added a new CFO, Chelsea Jang, who joined the company from Ping On Ventures. She also did a stint at Goldman as well as Barclays. She's very well known in China biotech circles and usually a crossover round of this magnitude and bringing on a well-connected CFO with a background at investment banks such as these signals an IPO could be nigh. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about overinvestment in oncology and in China, but with this, with the promise of mRNA and what we've seen from Moderna and BioNTech and Pfizer, if there was a sure thing, not that there's ever a sure thing in biotech, this might be as close as it gets. And one more quick point here, Paul, to, to touch on uh, something you brought up about there also being the Fosun deal with BioNTech. I was speaking with Brad Longcar yesterday, a uh, longtime China watcher on the a very fun biotech clubhouse that he runs with Daphne Zohar and Chris Garabedian. And Brad made the point that China has been engaging in a lot of vaccine diplomacy. And he said there's been talk that China's other vaccines aren't as efficacious or maybe not as durable. And so this vaccine would really give it another tool to engage in this type of vaccine diplomacy around the world. That will be interesting to watch, but it wasn't the only big news out of China last week. Not quite as big, but we did see a very interesting new company based in China with a beachhead in the US raise some money. Rannoch, Paul. Rannoch, yes. I I did speak with management at Rannoch. That's a a company that raised $40 million in Series B money in the middle of last week. It builds on some prior funding. They've raised about $50 million to date. Lapham Capital and Shanghai Healthcare Capital led the Series B alongside Wu Capital and some others. They haven't gotten any US investors yet, but they have set up an office in the Boston area. That's their beachhead. 
They're doing targeted protein degradation with a different mechanism from Protax, the, the most common version that we usually see from first-generation companies in this space. Rannock calls its molecules CHAMPs. Those are chaperone-mediated protein degraders. They, like Protax, are heterobifunctional small molecules, but they don't bind directly to E3 ligases. Instead, they induce proximity to HSP90 complexes that have multiple E3 ligases, and they say there may be safety and dosing advantages involved. They haven't yet revealed what their lead program is. They're still preclinical, but they say they will reveal more soon, I think, by the end of this year. Yeah, that funding came out right in time for highlighting in a story that my colleague Danielle Galvin wrote about what we call the TAC space for targeting chimeras. So basically building off the logic of protax, as people often call them, which engage E3 ligase or an enzyme that's going to tag proteins for degradation on one side and then engage the target uh, on the other and have these two ligands connected by a linker. And so this modular bivalent strategy is now being adapted to a bunch of other enzymatic ways of getting at targets. And one trend that we're spotting is around growth in AUTAC companies, so companies that are engaging targets and bringing them in contact with autophagy machinery. And the advantage over the sort of PROTAC approach is that you can get after larger targets, protein aggregates, lipids, even whole organelles. And so it's been interesting to see companies crop up in that space. I believe PAC with a Q Therapeutics is the latest to debut on that front. So the story, I invite people to dig into it because it really looks at a lot of companies that have disclosed these different TAC modular strategies and who's doing what, and even some kind of fresh stuff out of academia that's come out recently. Definitely worth checking out. All right. Great stuff. Thank you, Karen and Paul, and of course, Simone. So coming up, as we talked about at the top of the show, our annual back to school issue, start looking for that on Monday and join us for our podcast, which will feature key takeaways from the first day of back to school. Also coming up on biocentry.com, we will have Paul's story on the big Pfizer deal. If you're interested in the two Chinese companies that we discussed, Paul's stories are already up online on biocentry.com. Also coming up this week, we have Stephen Hansen will be speaking with Amun, an Israeli investor that's becoming increasingly prolific. And hopefully Stephen will get a nice little profile out of them. And our emerging company, Profile series continues. We'll be featuring a company that will be making its debut tomorrow. We have this under embargo, so that's about all that we can tell you. So look out for that. That's all we have time for. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>